there'll always be the argument that video games are meant to be played for fun. Believe me, some of it's a lot of fun. Video games are meant to be played at home, relaxing, on a couch, amongst friends. And they are. And that's fun. But competitive gaming, when you want to attach your name to a world record, when you want your name written into history, you have to pay the price. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. And coming up on today's episode is a guest that I've been waiting to get on this show for almost 18 months. Anyone that's listened to Mark and Me or skipped to the end will know my love for the documentary The King of Kong. It's easily one of my favourite documentaries ever made. And everyone that I know and that I've shared it with agrees It's absolutely outstanding. So around 18 months ago, I set out on this little project for myself, for Mark and me, to go out there and try and get the three main names that feature in this documentary. I was very lucky to secure Walter Day quite early on, and this was a great interview with the head of Twin Galaxies, and for me, one of my favourite interviews that I've done. It did actually take a bit longer to get the King of Kong himself, Steve Wiebe, and that took about another six months of trying but for me I always wanted to complete this special it always needed to be a trilogy and that's why I set out to do it but the final piece was Billy Mitchell now this guy is an absolute legend in my opinion he's such an established character he's so unique he's so different and to try and get him on Mark and Me was a lot harder than I realized only a few months ago we saw a big news story break about his cheating allegations and everything was pulled his scores everything that he had done had been taken off him so to then try and still try and get him on this podcast was just made even harder he's never done any press for the news stations he's had people like fox he's had these huge stations in america trying to get him on the radio podcasts but he said no to all of it he will not do any press he doesn't want to and why should he That really, really got to me because I thought, well, I've released these two parts and, you know, I want to get this trilogy and it doesn't feel complete. And my motto and my way of thinking in life is never give up. And it sounds really cheesy and something like John Cena would say, but it's really, really true. And for me, I couldn't just accept that was it. I worked hard. I did a lot behind the scenes and I made sure that I could get this interview. It meant me having a few previous calls with Billy to kind of establish I wasn't there trying to get a headline or to try and screw him over and make him look bad. It was someone that I wanted on this for you guys out there. You'd had the first two parts of this special and we really did need that final piece. So I'm absolutely thrilled to announce and it still seems weird saying it out loud now. Billy Mitchell is on today's episode. Yep, you heard that right. But you know the score with Mark and me by now. I also like to touch base on the last episode. So I was joined by the absolute legend himself, Joe Cornish. And as we speak right now, this is my second most downloaded episode of any episode I've done on Mark and me after James Acaster. So that really is a huge deal for me. 
I've never had so many tweets or Facebook comments or emails regarding this episode. It was such an honour to interview him. He was so positive. I felt like we hit the ground running. You know, a lot of the tweets I read this week was stuff like, it sounds like you two are friends or known each other for years. And that was the first time I met him. And honestly, I absolutely love the guy and I'm so glad you all enjoyed it. Now, I know a lot of you have tuned in today to hear this final part with Binny Mitchell and I don't want to delay it. All I would say is if you haven't seen The King of Kong, please stop now. Go and watch it and then come back because there's a lot discussed on here and I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But for those of you that are in the know and have seen this amazing documentary, you're in for a treat. So here it is. Here's me and Billy Mitchell talking all things King of Kong. How's your day going? Okay. Every day is a good day. Every day is a perfect day. Remember, I always say you have your memories of your past and your anticipations of the future. And if you have that, what else do you need? That's a nice way to think. If I say that, people will say I'm arrogant, so I'll let you say that. (laughs) (laughs) So Walter said to say hello. He did did really well. His interview came out really well. We talked for about an hour. I think I asked about three questions in the end, but it it did come out well. Very good. Maybe maybe we covered this or not, but as you can tell by the way we're stumbling and bumbling here, when I tell you that I don't really do interviews, you can see the evidence that I really don't. Um, and, and not that that's a problem. It's not a problem. I mean, Walter speaks well of you, and, you know, you've been good to people, so it's always good to return that goodness. But my question to you is, I don't really know what type of interview you're looking for. And if you have a particular one you want to tell me, that's fine. Or if you just want to sort of have me have a feel for it as we go, I'll find your way. I'd rather just have a feel for it and see how it goes and let the conversation flow instead of just asking you a question after question. That's how it's worked before. That's usually just the way, just let a conversation flow naturally. I've had some big guests on recently. I've had like Sir Anthony Hopkins, Mads Mickelson, Kevin Smith. The numbers are getting really good. So So what you're saying is you've had some semi-famous people and now you're trying to move the bar higher. Well, it, I can help you with that. Exactly. So I've got all those to get the bar ready and now, now I'm ready for you. Well, that's, um, that's what I would say. But the truth of the matter is in a more honest format, out of character, um, a couple of those people you've mentioned I've met and they're actually very, very decent people. They are. Um, as you go through the different avenues in the industry and the culture that I go through, I meet a lot of people yeah some of which you can very easily see could easily if you're crossing paths regularly could very easily be your friend they're they're incredibly uh, decent people um and unfortunately there's the people on the other end but i'd say there's more on the on the good side and um so it's it's really neat that you've had the experience of being able to you know interact with some of them so what i wanted to start with today billy is when you were growing up what was it that got you into wanting to play video games at home? Well, uh, you just stumbled here a bit, so I'll, I'll grab you on this. I never played video games at home. Ever. Never. I never owned a home video game system. Growing up and playing in the golden age of video games and in the 1980s, in the early 80s, we used to laugh at those that were not in the arcade, those other games. They would never amount to anything. They were something to be scoffed at and ridiculed, the substandard stepchild of a growing industry. Not only were we wrong, but I learned through my experiences and research that the industry as a whole, as early as the late 70s, began to fear the home home game industry and the fact that it would have such a dramatic impact on the arcade, the fact that people would be able to play video video games 
play them at home, not have to leave the comfort of their home to go to an arcade, and they feared the impact that it would have. I don't think anybody could have ever possibly seen the extent of the impact. I can't believe anybody actually saw that much fear, that much impact it would have to the level it's grown now. The idea that in 1980 you would think that you could play games at home against people, you know, halfway around the world. Not only were those fears real, but the impact that it had that we never saw. We could not have been more wrong. We could not have been. Um, I'm sorry, but if I get to your question, which I realize I lost in my explanation, I was a hardcore pinball player. Yeah. The fact of the matter is that the industry, the game or entertainment, that competitiveness that I enjoyed, it turned from pinball. It was more video games. Video games were so big. Arcades were so tremendous. They had a significant and documented impact on the music and movie industry, it was occupying people, particularly young people's time and attention and resources to such a degree that it had a financial impact on so many things around it. Well, wanting to play, wanting to compete, having that natural competitive nature within me that I enjoyed through sports because I engaged in so many different sports growing up, I almost feel as though I had no choice if I wanted to continue to enjoy that competitive element I had to make that turn towards video games. Some people tease me. I had to make that turn towards the dark side. And so once I got involved in the competitive gaming world, it was simply a fever, a passion that um, overcame me, a passion to drive further and further, higher and higher, to push harder and harder. And when I realized that I was pushing harder than anybody around me, when I realized that there was nobody who was virtually nobody who was driving at the level I was that I was around, it caused me to look further. It caused me to look more regionally in the country and then eventually on a national and international level for other people who competed on that level. Again, I, I don't think there was anything that was stopping that passion that I had. I think if literally if there were colonies on other planets, I would have been searching those to find those competitive players that I could compete with that I could butt heads with. Would I win? Sure, I would win. Would I lose? Sure, I would lose. But it was that competitive nature that video games brought out in me that was so tremendous. It impacted my life then and long after the golden age, long after I stopped playing those games, when I had to become a real person with a real career, a real job, real goals, things that included a family and security for that family. And it did have that impact on me. And it's had a very positive impact on me. I suppose I'm not the only one who's had, you know, such a a good, happy ending to their experience in gaming, but it certainly was that way for me. Can you remember how old you were when you first went into the arcade and what the first game was that you put your money in and played on? Sure. I would say that um, it was in the 1970s. I remember a couple of cousins of mine simply because you're that young, you had to get to the arcade. Uh, you had have money in your pocket. You had to play. And where we used to go was we used to go to a particular go-kart track to play go-karts. That included gaming. But there was that aspect, and then there was the local arcade at the mall. But I can remember games. I can remember 280 Zap. I can remember uh, Monaco GP. I can remember the games of the late 70s. As things advanced a little further, I mean, there was obviously there was Space Invaders. 
Um, there was Asteroids. Although those were fun and I enjoyed competing on them with friends, they weren't games that, that truly, truly grabbed me. I still had a greater passion in the arcades with the pinball that was there. I played the video games more to appease the people I was with. That hard turn towards video games um, first came with Donkey Kong, for sure. It came with Donkey Kong because there wasn't enough competition in the pinball world that I was in to satisfy me, and I had to play something that had a greater level of competition. So obviously when you got this first experience of Donkey Kong and you, you felt this game was something that you wanted to keep going back to, were you working to earn enough money so you could keep playing it, or how did it work? Well, from the time I was 13, I pretty much worked, and I pretty much worked full-time. So from that point onward, I always seemed to have you know, enough money in my pocket, although no 13-year-old in the real world has enough money, but when you have a little bit of money in your pocket, you don't have any responsibilities, any bills, or anybody you have to hand money to, then you would probably always have enough money in your pocket. I don't, I can't recall going to the arcade saying, gee, I wish I had some more money. Yeah. Um, and I did get to the point where my money went a long way. I remember strategizing my time as to when I could go to the arcade. I made it a point. I never skipped school. I never went into school late because I was playing in the morning. I never missed work. But with that being said, and I guess paying myself that small compliment, there were moments where every single minute of my life outside of that was in the arcade because that's where it shined. That's where the fun was. That's where the satisfaction and the competition was. Did you find that Donkey Kong was the game that gave you the competition that you'd been looking for for so long? Well, I tend to like games that are more methodical. Donkey Kong is a very methodical game. Yeah. Other games such as Defender are more of a reactionary game. Most people would tend to enjoy one or the other. I'm sure there are people who cross over both worlds. I tend to enjoy games that are more methodical. Centipede is a game that I played that was less methodical and more reactionary. But Donkey Kong was one of the games in the arcade at its time that you had a hard time, that there were so many people standing around and everybody was watching. So it was that competition that I went after. And fortunately, in different restaurants, of people that I know or my own family restaurant, I was able to get to the game more easily and therefore spend more time not waiting behind somebody in an arcade is one factor. The other factor is growing up here in the Fort Lauderdale area, we had the world's largest arcade, the world's largest arcade that had as many as 1,200 games and it was 24 hours a day. There was never a time that I, I had to wait for a Donkey Kong. There were times where there were 20 Donkey Kongs in a row lined up along the wall. Um, there were times where between Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, Junior Pac-Man, what I call the Pac-Man derivatives, there were over 100 of them in the arcade at one time. Wow. So that was obviously an advantage that I enjoyed. But going back to your question of Donkey Kong, yes, I began playing, and there were as I was playing, there were a couple of people, one guy in school, who basically had higher scores than me. And I was just, I was so aggravated within myself the greatest competition you'll ever have in the world, the greatest thing that'll ever drive you forward or force your focus where it should be is the competitive competitiveness that lies within you. 
and I was so enraged with myself that I would allow somebody to be in front of me that it was the driving force that that pushed me forward and again once I got past those people the question was okay where do I go now and I would go around to different arcades looking for scores looking for people looking for those claims yeah I would drive around the state again I'm a teenager I would be in the car going state to state with my family the car would stop and I'm running around looking at machines and high scores and um it just became such a passion that I, I couldn't possibly believe under any circumstance that somebody could be as good as me. And I had that obsession within me that caused me to basically continually look at and try to find people that played on that level because if they played on that level that I was playing, it would only drive me to push harder and harder, put more and more pressure on myself. It was kind of like a self-induced punishment. But it, it, it worked well. It's worked well then, and it worked well in other aspects of my life as well. So what was it like when the gaming kind of blew up and you had this documentary Chasing Ghosts come out and you were in that and you were one of the main faces on there and suddenly it's not just you and a few friends, everyone's playing arcade games. Well, remembering that the classic gaming world, the coin-out world as we say, we say, for better or worse, that golden age of video games came to a close in 1986. It was a time when the industry was taking a significant hit because of the home industry. And the arcades that existed were struggling to stay in business. Yeah, You couldn't keep their focus on organized competitive gaming. Initially, you couldn't keep their focus on it to begin with because they were making so much money, they didn't care to talk about other ideas. Then... When they were struggling to stay in business, they didn't care about any other ideas. They just wanted to stay in business. It was a very difficult bridge. And so the fact of the matter is that in 1986 to 1987, basically me and my friends, for the most part, stopped playing games. You stopped playing games because there was not that competitive edge to them. Now you fast forward, and the year was 1999, you would say 20 years um, or thereabouts since the golden age, since the release of games like Pac-Man. And video games, like a car, a car is released, it's a new model, it's a big deal, it's a big version, like say the Mustang, and then the interest in it sort of fades a bit or just naturally falls off. But 20 years later now, it's a classic. It has a legacy. It has a rejuvenated interest simply because now it's a classic and it has a history behind it. Yeah. Well, 1999, and it's that perfect storm that's coming. And during that perfect storm, as there was a little bit of interest back and the competitive world began to reminisce and relive its pastime, not a whole lot different than the way you go to high school but you can see guys many years later on Sunday morning at the park playing softball or playing what we call soccer, you call football, running around, living, enjoying their pastime because it's the memories they have, it's the fun they have, and they enjoy it. Well, that was beginning in the arcade world. But to have the perfect score on Pac-Man, to have that fall and fall on 
say, the 20th anniversary or thereabouts to have it fall on the 4th of July weekend. There's nothing big in the news. It was a very quiet weekend. And to have this cultural story, this soft-hearted story about something that was in so many people's hearts for so many years. I mean, Pac-Man was the most recognized symbol in the world. And nothing went wrong that weekend. Nothing stole the headlines. And the perfect Pac-Man went on the AP wire and ran around the world. I had phone calls, interviews, requests in languages that I never knew existed. That was a perfect storm that I couldn't put together again. I mean, I would if I could. I, I can't. I can't funnel that energy through one place and have it cause that positive explosion again. I, I have in my mind, I've, I've thought about it. And, you know, everything in life is timing. Uh, that was timing. That was the circumstances. That was the perfect tempest. And so, but because of that, because of the events that followed with me in Japan, it was Masaya Nakamura that many, certainly myself, would call the godfather of video games who had me on stage, and he predicted, he said that the achievement here and what you've done, he says, will spark a renewed interest in classic gaming. And with all respect to him, I didn't give that a lot of thought. I was very flattered, and I appreciated the thought very much. And when I came back to the U.S., it wasn't long at all. And suddenly there were camera crews following us, and uh, they were all chasing this history, this legacy, this story about our past and where it was and where it's been brought today and where would it go in the future. I think at one time there was about seven or eight camera crews following us. Most of them were small, and there were two larger groups that basically had the other ones outgunned. And eventually those many groups narrowed down to just a small amount of groups, and it was those small amount of groups that actually were able to make headlines with their films um, and get them into film festivals, one of which, as you say, was Chasing Ghosts. And you would think the story ends there. No, those, those initial films simply caused more people to look at it and more people to take an angle or want to begin filming you know, so much of this story and this history and the fun that goes along with it. Um, they haven't had the same splash as the initial ones, but they're ongoing. They're going all the time. I get spoken to and requests on a very regular basis about them, uh, some of which are being put together by people I know, friends, people that I, I will help try to push or promote their film. I could have never, in my wildest dreams, looked at the situation from back in the early 80s to see that it would come to this point. What was it like being part of it then? So kind of living it and being there and you couldn't have been prepared for it mentally because it just blew up, didn't it? Um, you're you're 100% correct. As you say, you couldn't be prepared for it. There was a group of us that were there at that first gathering in November 1982, the first gathering, you know, what they called the, the first group of esports players. And it was in November of 1982 and it was in front of the cameras of Life magazine and I'm often asked, there were those, uh, gee, was there 16 people there? What's the difference? Why did things happen differently than for me? I struggle to find the right answer, um, but one answer that I can give you for sure is those people who were there, they had fun. We shared all of our experiences. We basically shared our secrets. But for the most part, the guys in that group, they had their fun. They made history. They were part of that ignition 
that lit the engine that drove competitive gaming to where it became. But for the most part, they left there and they went home. Um, I didn't. When I was there, I, I wanted to know what was next and what was next and what was next. And I was just forever driven at the fact that whatever was coming, I was going to be there. I wasn't going to miss anything. You can't get lucky if you don't put your money down. You know, my, my line is, I was always there when the wheel went round. If you're not there to bet on the wheel when it's going around, you can't win. So I don't know that um, what I did was so right, but I know that if they wanted or if they were to achieve or have the good fortune I had, what they did was wrong. You're going to fail 100 to 110% of the time that you're not there to compete. And for the most part, the other guys weren't there. And the idea that they went home um, their life and went back to a different avenue they chose to take is 100% respected. 100%. So that's the reason why Gee, all those guys in those pictures, and the question is, why you, Billy? Was it based upon gaming ability? Well, I guess we were all there based upon gaming ability. Yeah. But was it because you were the best, Billy? No. If I were to pay myself a compliment, I was probably more determined than anyone else. And if I had to pay myself a compliment, um, if I was able to look in the crystal ball, I would say that I was willing to do what many others simply weren't willing to do. There are a lot of people today outside of that original group that they want to have all of the satisfaction, the fun and experiences that we're talking about, and they sit at their keyboard, and that's where they are, and you're never, ever, ever going to get that success, that fun, that recognition, that notoriety, okay, or that experience if you don't step out and step into the ring. I don't even mean the ring of competitive gaming. So very little of what I do is actually gaming right now. But to go out and participate and to push and to advocate and be a part of the hobby, push it forward and enhance its future, even through the glorification of other players, is what we mostly do and it's where we get most of our success. And I realized how important that was when I was on stage in Japan, and afterwards I sat in the executive offices with Masaya Nakamura, what I took away from the conversation is the responsibility that was put upon me, that was put on my shoulders, simply because I was in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time, depending how you look at it, was that I had to take a position, an ambassador-type position, to push, to advocate, to promote and to drive forward the hobby of competitive gaming. And so since the year 2000, that was my main focus, my main goal. And again, so very little of it is actual gaming. I mean, in 1999, to do a perfect score on Pac-Man to achieve the almighty holy grail, I almost look at it and say to myself, gee, what else is there to do? And when I look outside of actual standing at the game, there's a whole world of work to do. Yeah. And so that's actually what occupies most of my thoughts and efforts since the year 2000. 
So in 2000, you had that determination, you had that drive, you had that passion. In 2006, you were claimed as the greatest ever games player in the world. And MTV said you were the one of the most influential people on the planet. Those compliments, was that enough? Was that your goal at that point because of that recognition? Or was there still stuff that you wanted to achieve? Well, I think what happens with me and with probably most people, but certainly people in my position... I mean, I had a goal in, in the 1980s. I had a goal to be the best. Um, in 1984, I was crowned Player of the Year. So I had reached that goal. And, you know, the old saying that, you know, the morning after the competition is far more difficult than the day of competition. So it's the morning after the competition. It's the morning after the victory and the goal achieved. So in 1984, I said, wow. I did it. I'm there. And that's terrific. But the next morning you say to yourself, what next? And as you begin to drive and push forward, you score a perfect score on the most heavily distributed game in the world on what they call the Holy Grail. And you say, wow, that's it. I did it. There's nothing left. And then you wake up the next morning, you search your mind, and whether you want to or not, and whether you should or not, you find that passion for what else there is okay in 2006 i had the i was flattered at the honor that was bestowed upon me just as you speak and yes it's so easy to sit in a chair and lean back and say man i've arrived i'm here there's nowhere else for me to go but the natural nature that's within you that's within all of us or at least most of us or anybody who's competitive in any aspect of life not just gaming you find somewhere you find a goal you sit there and you create a plan. To have a goal without a plan, you know, is nothing more than a wish. And you just continually seem to make goals in your life. And I mean, I remember in 2006, I remember seeing that. And I mean, I remember getting so, so obsessed within my children, their future, where they would go, what they would want to do, you know, their education, their level of education. That I mean, that passion that you have, and it, it, it did come... Obviously, I had it to begin with. Obviously, it was forever etched in my, in my soul through gaming. It spills over to other aspects of your life. And without a doubt, those other aspects of your life take a greater importance than the actual gaming. But you continually come back to it. Okay, that was in 2006. Then the movies began to be released. Then there were more movies. Okay? Then they say, um, gee, there's this competition or that competition. Something that's not related to me, something I'm not going to compete in. Yeah, but we need you there to MC it. You know, we we need you there to be the master of ceremonies. You got to have the mic in your hand. Yeah. You get asked that by people that are friends, people that have been good to you. People, it's just too difficult to say no to. I'm thinking of a particular guy at Namco who would call me, and it was just too difficult to say no to him. I I, I couldn't say no to him, so I I'd be there. And then once I'm there, without a doubt. You have the passion, you fever. I got this microphone, and I got it in my hand, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it better than anybody in the world. So that spirit never leaves you because you want to drive. You're driving a hobby, a competition. You're driving a passion that you already have within you. You're driving it further. You're having a greater impact doing that than you had with individual scores. That, in, that initial success may have put you in that position to have the microphone in your hand, yeah. to have the camera in front of you. It did. But what you're doing now 
has a far greater impact than what score you got on some machine in a monitor with some people standing behind you. Are you this driven and this kind of uh, motivated in everything you do? Are you kind of competitive in everyday activities? Because you seem to be, you know, just having that microphone, that power and that drive. Is it with everything? Is it being a father? Is it being a husband? Is it being uh, a business manager? Is it in everything you do you want to be the best? Absolutely, 110%. For example, my kids go to school. Um, It wasn't good enough they go to school. In the morning, I drop them off at school. Now, my wife's the teacher, so she had the same schedule as them. So let me get her off the hook here first. <laughs> I drop them off at school, and I pick them up at school. I'm not going to have them walk to school. I'm not going to have them take the bus. I'm not going to have them do anything. Because in a perfect world, your parents would drop you off at school. Okay? In a perfect world your parents would pick you up from school. In a perfect world, your parents would sit and work with you and do your homework. Not too proud to say that they got to a certain grade and not not that high of a grade either. (laughs) I couldn't sit there and help them with their homework. I didn't know what they were talking about. (laughs) Um, So um, luckily my wife was a teacher and, and she did. So I had this driving impact, okay? My son began playing sports. And I remember that first day thinking it was so cool put the lawn chair out on the field and I sat in the lawn chair and I'm telling you, I wasn't sitting five minutes and I saw the situation go awry. I got up out of the chair and I went over and I asked the coach if he needed help. And he said, yes, I immediately began helping. I immediately began coaching and son of a gun. It never, ever ended every, every day. Every day I didn't miss, not only did I miss, but all the way through youth sports, which began in second grade, let's say for my son, he never missed a single practice. He just never did. And not only am I glad he didn't, but he wouldn't allow himself to. And so if he wasn't going to miss a practice, how could I be, how could I not be there to help, to participate to drive and push the team and the situation as a whole. So, yeah, that passion is is obviously within me. Eventually, it was almost a sigh of relief when you actually got in high school, and then they won't allow you on the field. They don't want your help. Go away. Go sit in the stands. Um, some places don't even let you go to the practice and watch. So in some ways, it was a sense of relief that I, I sort of got driven away. But then I say to myself, okay, well, how do I participate even though I can't participate? Well, there were um, the coaches and, um, you know, there was all the fundraisers they had. There was um, after the game, there was meals served. So, I mean, I was at the forefront of that. I just always found a way to be competitive. Um, You know, we went from park to park. We changed where we were. We went to the more competitive places. You know, my son, God bless him, he, I mean, he stepped up to it on every occasion. The driving passion that I've learned from gaming came to occupy every aspect of my life, for sure. The only thing I can say that I'm truly, I just look at, wow, am I grateful. Although I have that demand or that driving passion to try to do my very best at what I do, um, fortunately, I don't put that upon the people around me because if I was to be demanding or want to 
command that out of others that are around me, I would make them miserable. I'd be all alone. So although I have it within me, you know, I don't tell others around me, come on, put your shoes on. You got to go running with me. Um, Oh, man, I wouldn't have too many friends or family. <laughs> with the the success of the King of Kong is it blows my mind how many people have seen this documentary. It's been voted in the top ten all time documentaries. It's always in the IMDb charts. It's nobody, surely even yourself, Walter, Steve, could never have expected it to be this big when they were filming it and you were there doing and taking part in it. It must have blown your mind on another level. Well, it absolutely does. You're absolutely correct. If I look at it now, if I look back, it's easy to look back and have the right answers. Thinking of the outrageous impact that video games and the arcades, because the video games were great. They were awesome. They were what everybody enjoyed. But what made the games was the arcade, the atmosphere. Um, I try to explain to people the atmosphere. You know, you can sit at home. You can probably have the greatest meal cooked that you ever had. You can have food and drink. You can truly enjoy it, and most everybody does. But there's also that aspect or that atmosphere where you want to go out, you want to be amongst the people you like or the people you love, your loved ones and friends, and you want to sit and enjoy and be in that spectrum or that arena and you want to enjoy that, which is already available at home. It's easy for me to say to somebody who's too young to, to know, I say you have no idea the impact they had. Yeah. But just as we look back, it, it's hard to envision that, that impact. But again, as I watch the movie, and I, I can easily say, of course it should have had that. Oh, even greater than what they said. I can sit there and tell you stories of everything that was not included, that should have been included. I can sit there and tell you the things that they should have expounded upon. Even you, who've done the research, you cannot get a full grasp of the situation as a whole or how it got here. You just can't, with all respect to you, and I mean that. I wanted to know when was the first time you watched it back. I've never watched it. Never all the way through? Never all the way through. On my soul... And present the polygraph, I'm happy to take it. So all these people have talked about it, it's been in the news, it's been on the every internet page around, it's been voted the top documentary, but you've never watched it back. I've never watched it back. It doesn't mean I don't know all about it. I experienced it, I lived it, I lived all of it, including that which is on the room floor that you've never seen. I've obviously um, seen photos, clips, somebody sends me something in an email saying, hey, look what showed up here, and I click on it. And it's a 10-second segment of something odd from the movie. I've seen all of that. But to sit down and watch it through, um, no, I haven't done that. I haven't even done close to that. As a matter of fact, I've been at venues where they're doing that, and you're meeting people, and you're saying hi, and you're talking to people, you're doing interviews or quick interviews with people like yourself while the movie's playing inside or in the, in the theater. Yeah. And it's not that that's true with King of Kong. That's true with any film that I've done. I I don't feel a, a need to do it, and I, I actually don't want to do it. I've, I was told early on by people that I respect tremendously, um, I'm thinking of an individual in particular, and one who was very, very good to my son. He said to me, he said um, he was an extremely accomplished athlete, 
and he told me, he says, you don't want to read the articles about you. He says, no matter how flattering or successful they are, he said, they'll make you feel complacent. They'll make you feel as though you've arrived. They'll make you feel as though the work is done. He says, they'll actually steal some of your energy. And he says, someday when you're an old man, you can have fun, you can reminisce. Um, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, there are a number of people that I've come to meet in the circles. See, the one I'll pick on, um, Jim Carrey. He's never watched anything that he's in. Uh, he's the one that gave me the line, why should I watch it? I lived it. So um, I, I've just never felt the need to. Um, that is the right answer. That's the correct answer. It's the honest answer. But I'll give you a little bit of dirt. I am far too anal in my thinking. Things absolutely drive me nuts. Uh, I always laugh. I tell people, I see things and I hear things that you don't. And I don't mean I'm from another planet. But I'll sit there and I'll watch something and I see what's wrong. I'll say, yeah, I said that. But I said that before over there referring to this. Hollywood has a level of creativity, of element. It has to be entertaining or it won't stop. And you won't get to see anything because it won't make money. Yeah. And so I sit there and I guess it's one of my strengths and it's also one of my weaknesses that I sit there and I easily critique things. I easily break them down and I, I see the strengths, but I see the weaknesses too. I'll, I'll meet you there. We're in London and we're going to go into a restaurant. We're going to walk into a restaurant and when you open the door, you won't notice it, but I'll notice it door's not on the hinges right that door squeaks nobody else heard it squeak but i did i'll look in the restaurant and i'll say wow they're shorthanded here it's not always fun toying with its insight again it's not always a strength it's a weakness and so i also think that i don't necessarily need to see some of these things some of these films or some things that i do because in some ways the way that i critique things it would steal the fun it would. They're nothing but fun. And I guess it would steal the fun. But again, the first answer I gave you is also a very, very true answer. I um, have followed you for a long time. I've been on your Instagram and I see you get a lot of abuse on there. You can go on there and say, hi everyone, a really nice, you know, a really nice post just saying you're going to be over on Twitch or you're going to be at an event and you get the same people saying, abuse to you you know you're a fraud you're you're a bad person and do you ever get do you ever get to the point where you're sick of it you're trying to convince me that people say that about me i know they're arseholes but i see that you go on there and you're very honest you say i don't know you you don't know me i don't understand why you've got this hate for me but do you get sick of it do you get as sick of the abuse let's start at the beginning when things first came to be like in the movie um I'll give you the, the, we'll start with the easy part first. I've never had a negative encounter face-to-face. Never. Never. That's good. Well, there's something different from being behind the keyboard than to being in front of somebody. That doesn't mean I haven't had hard, honest questions that I welcome very, very well, because I'll answer anything, because I have had those. And I've had phone calls somehow, somebody just gets through to me, um, and that's not often, but it happens. But boy, in those early days... Those email came, and they were some of the most vile things you've ever heard. Um, if I was in a room 
in a fraternity house with a bunch of drunk fraternity guys, there are some messages that were so vile I wouldn't even read it to them. But as time went on, it flipped so much, so much, so much, so much. I almost never, almost never get any anymore. Now, recently, we've had some some fun that's kind of humorous with controversy that, um, that has caused some more, like you're saying. But I think that, I'm sorry to say, I think that I enjoy um, the competition of this. You know, for example, I guess I it's part of competitive nature. Someone will say to me something, you know, boy, what a nasty, you know, arrogant son of a gun you are. And I'll say, uh, they'll talk about um, how somebody um, came into a restaurant and I didn't even go out and see him. I wouldn't even go in the restaurant. I'm thinking of this one guy in particular. And I says, are you kidding me? And I go, you saw it on the screen, so you've drawn that conclusion of me. Do you think that when Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he's not making a movie, he goes out in the street and just starts shooting people? Is that what you think? I mean, I guess I, I have a level of fun with it. And I say to somebody, I says to one guy, I go, let me ask you something. I go, do you really think, yeah, here's a good example. Do you really think I answer the phone at home? World Record Headquarters, can I help you? <laughs> and I get a little bit of silence and I'll say, let me give you a hint. I don't have a home phone. They had to bring the phone in so we could film that. And you usually get silence or when anybody runs out of an educated answer, you'll get a personal insult because that's all they have left. Um, so I, I, have, I have a lot of fun with that. And the truth is on my side. And I recognize the fact that you take 99.9% of the people that watch a film and they have a very normal reaction. It's exciting or it's boring. It's interesting or it's dull. It's intriguing or it's stupid. It catches their attention or they fall asleep. But you get the people on the fringe. That is some of the most unbelievable thing you can make a movie about. I had safe voicemails that I've played late night and adults only atmosphere um, that absolutely stole the show. I had one show that I used to do with a guy and he used to beg me to do it and the answer was yes because he was a good guy but he did it at the end of his show because it was the highlight of every show and it was called Hate Mail with Billy Mitchell and we would just sit there and read some of that mail that came in and um, it, it was always the highlight of any show and it's just hard to believe that certain people go there or believe that. And again, it's, it's a life lesson because before, you know, when I was younger and dumber, I had a certain thought pattern and I very easily see now on TV and culture today, I see how politicians get elected. I see how things are skewed. Um, it's obviously made me a lot smarter person, but I wasn't always smarter. I didn't always see things clearly. But going back to your point, because I don't just want to softball it and run away from what you said, there are some people you can't reach. There are some people who just see it and it just doesn't have an impact on them. It's entertainment. There are some people who have these questions, and I give the answer, some of which I gave you, that you, they kind of look at the situation and say, oh, yeah. Well, you know, they kind of got caught up in the emotion of it a little too much, and now they see it clearly. But there's some people, no matter what you do, 
no matter what, they will never, ever, ever give an inch. Will never, ever say, oh, I didn't realize that. Never. If I fed everybody in the world, if there was no more hunger, they would say the food I gave them didn't taste good. (laughs) There's some people you can't reach, and if you sit there trying to reach them, then you'll only aggravate yourself. If you ignore them, I don't know, I suppose you could ignore them, but instead I tend to engage them in a positive way, and I see which ones are at least pulled to a healthy conversation. They don't have to agree. Pulled to a healthy comp- uh, conversation, and it's interesting to see which ones you can't ever do anything with. There are certain people I say to them, I go, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you. I wish I could. I, I can't help you. You know, I mean, when someone thinks that I answered a phone at Home World Record headquarters, I can't help them. Okay, if, if the phone company came out with a statement and said he's never had a home phone, they would say that I ran a long line from the neighbor's house so that I'd have my own phone. I mean, they, they would just, I, there's nothing I can do to help those people. There's people that are unhappy, that are filled with their own lack of um, self-fulfillment. There's people who have different emotional problems. There are. They have, there's some people that have mental illness. God bless them. I hope the best for them. I truly do. There's people who don't leave their keyboard, and I don't truly know what it is they want or they want to be worshipped from behind the keyboard, and that's just never, ever going to happen. Maybe it could happen for a writer, but even those writers that are so incredibly successful, they tend to engage the public. And I've actually invited people that were people (laughs) of a level of disdain, and I've invited them to events. Most of the time, you just get ignored I ain't going there. You're trying to trick me. Oh, yo, yo, you can't make me do Oh, you just want to try to take advantage of me. But I've had a few that have come out to events and joined, and I went out of my way to make sure that they engaged and we engaged with them. And we actually had fun, and they had fun, and they came away with a different perspective. Um, again, those are people you can reach. But there's some people you're just never going to reach. They have a level of hatred or a level of anger or a level of crybabiness. And I always say to people, I say, I can't help those people. Only God can help them. And I hope he does. That's a great answer. And um, I'm hoping this podcast itself paints a different light for people that have only seen the documentary. Well, I always always tell people that someone like yourself, you'll say that 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 was a very nice answer. And I'll say, well, don't tell anyone I was nice. It would be bad for me. <laughs> I, I, make, I make my living on the other side. Yeah. So, Or someone will come up and they'll say, oh, God, I saw the movie. It was so awesome. And I'll say, well, only believe the bad stuff. The good stuff they edit in to try to make me look human. Again, if you can't laugh with it and you can't laugh at yourself, you're in trouble. And I have to laugh, including laugh at myself, for a lot of the silliness we do because it makes life a lot more bearable. Earlier on in the year, in February, when your scores were removed from Twin Galaxies... Okay, well, they were they were questioned in February. Yeah. They were removed in April. So once they were removed, your name, and I don't know if you go on the internet and read much, because if you're not watching the documentaries, you might avoid it, but your name was everywhere. Every news site I went on, every entertainment page. Did you try and avoid it all? Get your head down and just avoid it, because... It was everywhere. Every page I clicked on that day was you. You're right, it was. Because I make news. 
because I'm where the hits come from. I'm the one that makes a difference, for better or worse. And the fact of the matter is, I knew, I knew in advance some of what was coming because somebody who was very good to me and helpful to me, who had advanced knowledge of things, were sharing them with me. So as far as in the media to prepare for that, no, I wasn't doing that at all. On the legal aspect, I was very much doing, doing that. Um, but as I have said in the past, I didn't express any level of bitterness because you can't let people change who you are, whether anybody on the other side, whether they like it or not. I did those scores back then, and I've done those scores now. Okay, um, I provided an outrageous avenue for certain people. For example, I'll challenge you here, Mr. Mark. I want you to tell me who else was on the cover page of Variety.com twice in one week. I don't know anybody, and not that I aspire to be on there, but I knew in advance that whatever happened because word got to me from otherwise good people yeah um what was going to be here what i figured would happen and did happen is a press release was put out and it was sent to a friend at variety who put it on their front page and then so many i don't want to say every single one but almost every publication that does not have journalists anymore. Copy, paste. Copy, paste. Yeah. Copy, paste. I told you in, a, in an earlier phone call, I don't do interviews. Again, you come from a friend, and you were good to them, so the answer was yes. So when I say I don't do interviews, that's almost true. For example, I had somebody show up at my mom and dad's house. I was out of town. So they showed up at my mom and dad's house thinking it was my house. And they got my mom and dad there. And I was out of town. And it was a bunch of silly conversation that took my mom and dad off guard as in their senior years that they are. And so when I got back in town, I returned a lady's call. And maybe I returned her call to give her a piece of my mind for going to my mom and dad's, which I ultimately did not give her a piece of my mind. But she goes, well, she goes, would you like to talk about this? You want to give a comment? And I said... You took an article, you cut and paste and printed it. I gave her half a dozen questions. Did you investigate this? No, that, no. This person, no. That person, no. This witness, that person, no, no, no. And I said, you copied and you paste. And you want me to give you a couple one-liners. It'll really drive the story. And she was just silent. And I says, now you ask me if I want to talk about it. You already printed it and you put it on the front page of your newspaper. And she says, well, we could do another story. She said that then. And now she says to me, which I guess you're aware of, you know, she goes, wow, you started playing again. And she says, I guess you did um, a few one million point scores within one week. And I says, yeah. And I go, I was told that I never did a million, that I couldn't do a million, that I wasn't good enough to do a million. And over a 36-year career, I did... The three scores that they talked about, 
that were over a million. Well, I did three million point scores in a week. And now I did one of the scores, the main score that was in question a couple months back. I played, I hit that score in the head, and I let it die. Just to be in character and just to be arrogant, I did that. I did it at a big event, too. Well, just the other day, I took that second questionable score, and I, I did something similar to that. She wants to do a story. And I go, really? You want to do a story? Yeah. And I go, it's funny. You didn't really need to talk to me to do a story last time. And I go, so why do you want to talk now? She says, but, but, just so you can tell your side of the story. And I says, I turned down interviews with HBO, and you think I need you to get my story out there. And she says, well, it would be nice. And I go, well, let me ask you, where are you going to run this story? You run it like in the, like in the local section or, you know, something? She goes, oh, I don't know. I go, well, you ran the last one on the front page. And she said, yeah. And she goes, well, you don't ever really know where you're going to run it. I go, well, you ran the last one on the front page. Why wouldn't you run this one on the front page? I go, I think you should. And she said, well, we don't really let people tell us where we're going to run the story. I says, you're right. I says, you don't have to let people tell you where to run your story or what page you have to put it on. But I don't have to give you the story. And the fact is, if I'm going to give you the story, you're going to put it on the front page or you don't get the story. Yes, that's me. That's the arrogant me that you treated incorrectly before. Yeah. I didn't investigate. So I do have a little bit of that fire within me. Um, and not everybody did that. There were people who created tremendous questions, um, who had tremendous problems with that information that was released, people that saw tremendous holes in it. But the fact that it was pasted everywhere, I was prepared for that, and I still had my schedule, and I still stuck to it. And most anybody that I came across, well, first of all, everybody was kind. I had some people express dismay with it. I had some people ask me questions, which I answered. But I, I told myself that I, I couldn't let it knock me off balance. I couldn't let it change the person that I am. You know, there's always the backlash that comes the other way. And right now there's a group of people who are feeling the backlash the other way, and it's only going to get greater. You know, I'll ask people, say, well, that's the story you've heard. And I say, well, are you aware of other higher authorities, more knowledgeable authorities who dispute the original findings? Did you check into that? No. Okay, well, you know, everybody likes a dirty story, you know. And I say, well, I said, um, he couldn't do it, he wouldn't do it, he shouldn't do it, he won't do it, he never did it. Well, I kind of did it on demand a couple of different times. You take notice of that? Well, yeah. Well, what's, well, yeah. I do fun with it. I, I, I put people on the spot. And I'm actually careful because I can do it, I can have fun with it, I can make people look foolish, and to be honest, if I'm not careful, I can make it turn a little nasty. And that's just, regardless of what you've seen on, in films and in the fun we've had, that's not my personality. Not. You, can, you speak of reading some of what I've put on Instagram, and you can see from what I've put on Instagram that I truly don't have that in my personality. 
I truly do answer the questions within a perspective. I don't ever share nasty negative names statements with anybody. I don't. I simply answer the questions. I tell people that, that they take this too serious or that too serious. My God, this is gaming. Let's still have fun doing it. And some people run with it and they're okay with it. Some people just don't get swayed. And I get scolded by my family because I don't simply just block the person. Because that's what my family does. If you look on Instagram, that is the one place where those comments on Instagram come completely from me. Only me. Yeah. No one else engages that. The other social medias are, are I get help from family members. Um, I don't think I've ever been on my Facebook. I don't even know what it is. People will send a question and they may copy it and then send it to me and I'll answer the question to help them. I'll hear about it for other ways or other reasons. But Instagram is the one thing that is me and only me. The other ones would be family members engaged and maybe they consult with me on a question or, or maybe they don't. I do have fun with it. I, I can't lie I can't lie about that. Hasn't hasn't one of the best ways to shut everybody up with the technology now that we have of Twitch live streaming in August you hit over a million and isn't that the best way to say to everyone fuck you yes except um I need you to tell me the last time you heard me curse so no, it... you're allowed to I just when I took on that position in the year 2000 I I did I was an aggressive driver I I was a road rage kind of guy I was and I realized who people are watching me I, I gotta watch myself you don't have to watch <laughs> yourself and please don't apologize to me like I said I like having fun and picking on you yeah but um the truth is I didn't like Twitch. I don't know that I do yet, but I can't win every argument. It is what people consider live, although to me it's not live like live, but I have to accept the fact that it's accepted by everybody. When I did Million 47, I did it at the Barcade, Tappers, in Indianapolis, an awesome place with great people that I recommend for anybody. And they were one of the major sponsors of um, Arcade Fire that was shown at the Indie Fringe, which was what I was there for. Yes, I did it on Twitch, but I did it live there in their place filled with people. The game was on every screen. It was actually an awesome setting. It was very sports-like. When I'd done the scores at home, I played it to a million, and I stopped it right on a million. That's kind of a subtle, subtle protest that I have. Okay, it's Twitch, it's live, it's real. Okay, here I played. Yeah, you can look at it. Okay, yeah, we can count it. But I'm only going to give you a million. Um, most recently, the one I did in the million fifty, that was at a barcade, most crowded place in the world. Again, streaming on Twitch. So that kind of made me happy that it was at that live venue. Yeah. Uh, it's at a live venue on somebody else's machine. Because regardless of what you've ever, ever seen on any forum or in any movie, I have never, ever, ever submitted any score, ever, that was not a live performance, ever. And so this is my way of kind of sticking to that, but I also have to change with the times. I can't tell the whole world they have to mold my way. So that's kind of my answer to it. So yeah, that's probably the best way. But there's some people, I told you there's that fringe 
one of my friends, again, although I don't really engage much in social media, one of my friends sent me a posting where somebody had a whole lot of lip service about what happened, and the guy answered the lip service and said, listen, guy, he's done it at home, okay, he's done it at live events, he's done it all that more than once, okay, he's matched scores and watched this guy die, he's done it in front of crowds of people, and he's done it live on Twitch, what else do you want, do you want him to come to your house and do it? And another guy wrote, yeah, what's your address? So, again, I recognize there are certain people that just are never going to be satisfied. And it has nothing to do with me, and it has nothing to do with video games. If there wasn't a Billy Mitchell and if there wasn't a video game, those people would still struggle with those issues in different aspects of their life. There's nothing I can do to help those people. If I would, if I could, I would. I have to let that go. Does it, you went way back a couple of questions, does it make you pissy what happened is basically what you asked. Yeah. I guess in different ways it does, but if I allow it to consume me, I wouldn't be the same person. I wouldn't have the same happiness if I, I'd carry that baggage with me. I'd carry it with me here. I'd have it with you. I'd have it at home. And I, I, I can't do that. You know, I still go, I still engage, I still um, interact with the kids and the charities and the things that I'm involved in, the things that make me sleep warm and fuzzy at night. And um, I can't allow the crybabies of the world. They've existed. They've existed long before these past few months. They existed before the King of Kong. They existed long before video games. There's nothing, there's nothing for me to be able to do about that. If I find that gold nugget, if I find that answer, I'll certainly execute it. I just, I don't know what it is. And if you know what it is, tell me. I wish I did. I'd be a millionaire. I really appreciate your time today, Billy. Uh, you're not going to like me saying this, but you are a really nice guy. And I know don't spread any rumors like that. You are a nice guy, and I hope people listening hear the other side that they don't listen to all these stupid pages on the internet. And you're the biggest villain ever, and you're Darth Vader because you're just a nice guy. Well, you have to. Um, if I could draw a parallel, sometimes I draw parallels. I get in trouble. I don't think what we're discussing here, with the reactions of different people. I don't think it's ever going to go away. And I don't mean now, I mean in all of history and with nothing to do with me or with video games. I don't think it's ever going to go away. You know, I, I had somebody explain it to me. They said, no matter whatever happens in the world, no matter how the world progresses, no matter how culture changes, you're never, ever, ever going to get rid of the subject of racism. Because if there wasn't any racism in the world, then we would just borrow or manufacture it for the purpose that it is. There's too much money being made off it. There's too much attention. There's too much misery being inflicted upon one side to the other, whether it's real or not. And sometimes it's real and sometimes it's not. But it's never going to go away because there's too many people who use it for one reason or another. Well, the idea of anger or hatred or bitterness or lack of fulfillment, being able to point the finger at somebody and say it's that person's fault, why I don't succeed. If it wasn't for him or for her, my life would be different. 
that's always going to be like that because it gives people an excuse for their lack of fulfillment. And again, I want to wave a magic wand and have the world change. When I get the magic wand, I'll let you know, but I, I just have to accept it and all I can do is take care of my own corner of the world. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Billy Mitchell. Something I was actually concerned would never be said because I did feel defeated, but also in the same breath, you know, I was never going to try and just throw in the towel and think that's it. So there it is. And I'm so glad he came on the podcast and he's such a great guy. And I'm hoping that, you know, I've only shared this episode with one person before releasing it. And they turned around to me and said they see him in a completely different light now. And that's great. And I think we got the real Billy Mitchell on this episode. And I'm really, really grateful for him you know, coming on this episode and give me a world exclusive because there's no other podcast in the world right now that have him on. There's no news station with him. Yeah, there's some websites that, like he said, do the copy and paste articles, but no one has actually been able to get it from him himself until now. And I feel very honoured that I'm the one to give that to you all. I want to say a big thank you to Walter who helped make this happen. A huge, huge thank you to Billy Mitchell. And again, all you guys out there for listening and tuning in, because without you, I wouldn't have a podcast, and it's your support and your love and all those listens and downloads that gives me the drive and passion to want to keep on going. In the meantime, what I do ask is that you go on markandme.com. On there, there's my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram, my email, and most important at the moment, my Patreon. On there, there's a lot of chances to win some great prizes, but also for as little as sort of 70p a month, which is nothing, and you're getting an episode a week at the moment. It just gives me that chance to travel, to get places, to host the podcast, and it really does make a difference. So even if you think, oh, it's only 70p, those 70p's adds up, and that gives me a lot more chance and scope to give you a lot more material. So thank you to everyone that is on my Patreon, and thank you to anyone that listens now and signs up. I am going to have an episode out in a week. I've got a backlog of about 12 episodes now, so they're going to be weekly for a few months. And I just want to say thank you for tuning in today. And as you can hear, my voice is going. I'm quite struggling at the moment. There's a annoying throat infection I've got, and I just want to try and get rid of it with such a busy work schedule at the moment. But yeah, thanks for tuning in, and I'll speak to you all again in a week's time. time. Time to play the game! <laughs> it's all about the game, and how you play it. All about control, and if you can take it. All about your debt, and if you can pay it. It's all about pay, and who's gonna make it? I am the game, you don't wanna play me I am control, no way you can shake me I am heavy debt, no way you can pay me I am the pain, and I know you can't take me Look over your shoulder, ready to run Like a Cleveland bitch from a smoking gun I am the game, and I may do So move on out, you can die like a fool Try to figure out what my mood's gonna be Come on over, sucker, why don't you ask me? Don't you forget there's a price you can pay Cause I am the game and I want to play